Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Dan. I am I'm very honored to be asked uh, to come and speak at the Ethnos Conference. There were some great speakers here, not me. The other guys were really good. Um, and uh, and a lady, there was a lady as well. Um, but I am I am really thankful to whenever I'm asked to come and preach and share God's word. Um, it's just an honor God has given me to be called to, to be a preacher. And uh, very early in my life, I realized that's what God wanted me to do. And um, sometimes, you know, when you preach over a long period of time, you, you sort of get uh, tired of hearing your own voice. And you, you begin to think, nobody, everybody else is tired too. Nobody likes me. <laughs> and, you know, I you go back to the Scripture, it says, If any man speak... Uh, and this is in Peter, let him speak as an oracle of God, according to the ability that God gives. And so I realize that I have a holy responsibility, uh, that I'm called to uh, proclaim to you the Word of God, not in my own authority, but only as to what God has said. So I do hope that you will filter everything I say through the Scriptures. If it's not scriptural, you don't have to worry about it. But if it is scriptural, then you have to obey it. Amen? All right. Uh, I'm going to uh, pray first, and then I'm going to share a little bit of who I am, and uh, then we're going to get into the scriptures. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this uh, Lord's Day. We praise you for the privilege we have uh, and the freedom that we have in this country to worship, to come to you and proclaim your word. Father, we, we know there are people in the world who've come to worship in fear of their lives. Be with them especially today. Guard them. Keep them. Help them to love you with all boldness. And Father, we just ask that we would not take for granted what we have here. Oh, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come, to speak through me, to anoint me, to proclaim your Holy Word. Meet people, Lord, in the place of their need. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you yet, just ask that you would save them from their sins. Give them hope for those, Lord, who are discouraged. Lift them up. For those who are proud, oh, Lord, deflate us. Help us to learn to really just trust you. So we ask these mercies in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I was born in the city of Memphis, Tennessee, and my mother and father uh, broke up when I was about four years old. And so my dad put us on a train, sent us up to New Jersey to live with my grandparents uh, and effectively cut himself off uh, from our lives. Um in that situation in the city of Newark, New Jersey, my mother's life really fell apart, and uh, she got pregnant and gave up that boy for adoption, got pregnant again, and now I think this is the lowest point in my mother's life. And uh, right at that moment, another single parent, uh, mom in the housing projects in which we live, reached out to her and invited her to a little house church. And the next day, the evangelist and pastor came and led our family to Christ. And so my life was a life uh, of poverty, of growing up in the housing projects of Newark, 
of being discipled in a very urban inner city church that took cross-cultural ministry as their calling and ministry to the poor as their challenge. And uh, so that's where really I was mentored in my faith. And God in His mercy sent me on to college and seminary. And uh, in His mercy, I was able to plant a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, pastored it for 36 years, and then three years ago, stepped down from that pulpit. We still worship there when we're home in Chattanooga, uh, but most of my time now is spent on the road training churches in cross-cultural ministry and how to help the poor and to stand for justice. And it's a great honor uh, to be given that privilege in my life. My wife was here yesterday, uh, but uh, last night I took her down. My son lives in Wheaton, Maryland with four of my grandchildren, and our grandchildren won out over you this morning. I just want you to know that. Uh, so she's worshiping with them today. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to the book of Acts. And I am going to read uh, in the second service from the sixth chapter. Now, here's this is a funny thing. I don't know if this has ever happened to me before. But when I was uh, asked by Pastor Dan to come up to speak to the Ethnoths Conference, he said, would you stay over and preach on Sunday? And I said, I'd love to. And he said, we have two services. I said, okay. And he said, but you don't have to preach the same sermon. In fact, it'd be good if you could preach two different sermons. Okay. So, you missed the first half. And uh, I will give you a, just a, a brief summary of that. Uh, I read uh, from chapter 1 in the first sermon, and uh, that, that's where that great verse is in verse 8, where it says, um, After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses, uh, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And building on that verse, uh, I talked about how by the will of God, the, the church experienced a geographical extension. You notice those places, where you are, Jerusalem, the surrounding area, Judea, to the neighborhood of people you don't like, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's geographical extension. Then we talked about chapter 2, where Peter got up to preach and 3,000 people were saved. Man! And I just said, can you imagine what it would be like if Pastor Dan went downtown, preached an open-air meeting, next Sunday you got here and there were 3,000 more people? You would be so mad. You couldn't find a place to park. Somebody sat in your pew. Uh, but that's, that's how it was. it was. It grew that fast. It was just amazing. Ethnic inclusion. And that's really what happens in the book of Acts. That people uh, who were different were coming into the body of Christ. And even though uh, we don't hear much about the Gentiles coming in until uh, Peter works with Cornelius later on in the book of Acts, yet right in chapter 2, it says that people from every nation under heaven who were Jews and proselytes to Judaism. In other words, they weren't ethnically Jewish, but they had been converted to Judaism. And they heard their, in their own tongue 
the wonderful things of God being spoken by the apostles. And so we have this ethnic inclusion into the body of Christ. And then this other thing, which I'm going to talk a lot more now about now, is the qualitative complexity that began in the church. Did you hear that phrase? The qualitative complexity. And if you say it profoundly enough, it sounds significant. So we're going to look at how uh, God began to do that, especially in Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when I talk about the qualitative complexity of the church, uh, what I simply mean is that the Holy Ghost was working. And he was taking these people, all of whom now are by religion, Jews. These are Jewish believers. He has taken them, even though they are the very ones, some of them are the very ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. The very ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. That's We know that's true because Peter preached that to them in chapter 2. You nailed the Lord of glory to the cross. These people are now saved. The Spirit of God is living in them. And instead of being people who were trying to save themselves by their own works, people who were self-righteous in their arrogance, people very much uh, like a man named Saul, who at this point in the Scripture is not yet saved. He's going to be one of those who actually helps kill one of those seven men we just read about. Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Saul is going to help kill him and think he's doing God's business. That's what self-righteousness does to you. You hurt other people and you think you're doing God a favor. It's really, it stinks. But that's what he was all wrapped up in. God was saving these people from that. Instead of saying, you know, I have 
kept the laws of Judaism. I have kept the Torah. I, I have done everything that was demanded of me. And I know, you know, even like the, the parable Jesus tells, uh, you know, of uh, the publican. And he's, you know, there's two men that go up to the temple to pray. And the arrogant one says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man, a sinner. And the other man says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And by the way, when you come to Christ, that's really what happens to you. That pride is broken. It has to be. You, you and I could never come to the cross and say, I need forgiveness if pride is dominating our life. As long as we are arrogant in our self-sufficiency, we will never come to the Savior. But when you are broken and you realize what a mess you are. Now, I'm not saying you're not gifted. I'm not saying you don't have talents. I'm not saying there aren't great qualities about you. But when you come to the cross, you realize spiritually you are busted. You don't have anything to offer to God. And, and by the way, when you come to Christ, it's not about comparison with the next person. The only comparison that counts spiritually is between you and a holy and perfect God. Guess where you come out in that comparison? And I say this to many of us in America who are very competitive. We're competitive at school. We're competitive on the athletic field. We, the pride just oozes out of us. But when you come to the cross, it gets smashed out of you. Because you say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Hallelujah! And you can be saved! You know, God takes arrogant SOBs and saves them. Yeah, there you go, there you go. More of you should have said Amen. Okay, so where was I? So this is what's happening. Even though a man like Saul has not yet experienced, he will. Oh, he will in a big way. God's going to save him. And so we come to see this, these early Jewish Christians being totally transformed. Now, one of the cool things about Judaism is that its morality... And its sense of community and its stand for justice was right. They came from, it wasn't just a tradition, it was the Word of God. All of that Word applies to us. All of the things in the Old Testament, not the ceremonial law, not the sacrifices, not those things, but, but all the truth that's in the, in the Old Testament about how to live for God, all of that applies to us. And the Jews carried that with them into Christianity. Hallelujah. And so as the church was gathered, they were trying to figure out, well, how do, how do we live together? I mean, here you have, you know, maybe a couple of hundred disciples, the 12 disciples. There were at least 120 others. Maybe, maybe estimates are maybe 500 of, of the followers of Jesus who are gathered there. And then Pentecost comes and 3,000 people are added. And then 
uh, Peter and John, they keep preaching. And it tells us later on, a couple of more thousand came. So by the time we get to chapter 6, we know there are at least 5,000 people in this church in Jerusalem. And how do we live this Christian life together? And that's what I'm talking about in terms uh, of the qualitative complexity of the church. And I'll give you a few glimpses of this before we get more into our text in chapter 6. If you look at chapter 2, there, there are two prominent places. Chapter 2, verse 42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of beautiful. That is really a beautiful picture of the early church and the love they had. One of the phrase that jumps out at, at me is generous hearts. I mean, isn't that what the church ought to be? That the body of Christ, that we ought to be people of generous hearts. Now, now skip over with me to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, you have a, a very similar picture. Chapter 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. So here you see this qualitative complexity. They... They were changed in the quality of their life. They, there's this amazing generosity, amazing ability to share as the gospel was being preached. And that is what leads us to chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, uh, we see something was going on with the Christians. They, they had learned this from their Hebrew background. The community of faith takes care of its own. If you remember in the Old Testament, there were several categories of people that God's people were commanded to take care of. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Everybody in Israel knew that. Not everybody in Israel obeyed that. Oh yeah, there were plenty of selfish people in Israel. But culturally, by tradition, they knew that this was God's will. God's people take care of their own. You are to love your neighbor. 
as you love yourself. You are not to be hard-hearted against your brother. If someone comes to you and has need, you're supposed to help them. You're not supposed to exploit them. You're not supposed to loan them money at exorbitant interest so that you would hurt them. You're not to keep uh, a worker's garment overnight. If he's supposed to do something for you, you don't hold something that belongs to him and say, you're not going to get this unless the job is done. You take care of people. That, that's the tradition they came from. And so now these people get saved, and as they get saved, all of a sudden they realize there are quite a few elderly women whose husbands are dead, and they've come to faith. But now they're, they're caught in like no man's land. They've left the, the religion that they grew up in, and now they're coming into this new faith to believe in Jesus, this new community. Who's going to take care of me? And so the disciples begin to have a daily feeding. And they, they invite all the widows to come. And every day, the widows come and they know they're going to get a meal and it's going to be provided by the church. And the church is getting that money from all of all the people who've gotten saved who are selling their houses and land, Say, hey, we'll chip in. Nobody was forced to do this. This is not communism. This is, this is a willingness that the Holy Spirit brought in their hearts. I want to give what I have to help the people of God. But problem pops up. You see... There were two kinds of language groups that were prominent in one church. Two kinds of, really, ethnicities. One were the Greek-speaking widows. And uh, if you read there in chapter 2, you realize that a lot of people who got saved at Pentecost were people that had come from all different countries of the world, but had come to Jerusalem to worship at Pentecost. And so some of these people... They were cut off from home. Now they're here. They're going, man, I don't know what the Holy Ghost did to me, but there's nobody at home who knows this stuff. i got to stay. So they're, they're learning. They're getting taught by the apostles, but they've got no family there. they got nobody to take care of them. And they're receiving this food. There are two groups, the widows who speak Greek and the widows who speak Hebrew. Now, a funny thing happened. Funny, not ha-ha, but peculiar. The Greek widows, you know, they're coming in. And, and I, you know, I don't know who started this. And, and I don't know who, the Bible doesn't tell us who it was who, who missed lunch or something, you know. But they're there, and they see the Hebrew widows. And the Hebrew men are going over and giving them food. And just walking by the Greek widow. And maybe even the Greek widows say, uh, you know, we haven't eaten yet. But the Hebrew guys may not even, maybe they don't even understand the language. And so they're going, what's up with this? And it says a complaint arose. Now, I just want you to think for a moment about church. And has anything ever bothered you in church? Now, I'm glad I would not ask this in my own church because everybody would say, you? (laughs) Sometimes it is the preacher. I agree. But, you know, we if we are living our life together, if we're having a common life in Christ together. Now, Americans, by the way, we're not really good at common life. 
We're very individualistic. And we even like to go to churches where nobody knows us. You know, we, we like anonymity. But at the same time, we stand back and complain about how the church doesn't love people. And we're so hypocritical about this. But sometimes we're, we're so independent and individualistic, we, we don't even understand the concept. But here, there is obviously prejudice. And it's not necessarily a malicious prejudice. They're being overlooked. But you know how you can take overlooked to be an attack. My wife's an African-American, and we go to a lot of churches. And my wife often will walk in with me, and nobody will talk to her. My wife is a significant person. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm here at the Village Church. I have to confess this to you. Please don't hate me. I'm Presbyterian. I am a, a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, known as the PCA. My wife was the first black woman to go to our denominational college and to graduate. So she's one of those firsts. She, at one time, was the only African-American to be in our entire mission board, which significantly is the largest Presbyterian mission board in the world. Only one black person. So we served together in Swahili for a couple of, in, in Kenya, where we learned Swahili, tried to learn Swahili for a couple of years. Um, she's been on the board of advisors for our theological seminary, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. She's an assessor of church planters. She, she can peel you apart as to whether or not you are going to be good at this or not. Um, uh, She's a significant person in our denomination. She walks in, nobody talks to her. Now, I would call that being overlooked. Nobody woke up that morning and said, when that black woman comes to church, I'm not talking to her. (laughs) But it still feels like an attack. It feels like a statement. I'm not worth anything, am I? Now, all of us have moments in our lives where maybe our self-image or identity is threatened. We feel overlooked. We feel dismissed. We feel uncared for. Sometimes, though, it's much worse than that. Sometimes we are attacked. Sometimes we are viciously attacked because of the color of our skin or our, our backgrounds or our language. There, there's, we live in America, a nation that that was built on racism, and in our economic policies, in our our laws of segregation, in the history of slavery, uh, of our hatred for the immigrant uh, that is being so expressed today. There's there's a lot of sin in our country, and and here we have the Church of Jesus Christ who says, we read that text from Ephesians, that he's making us into a new humanity, that he's put us together all in himself. Now here, very early in the church, they're all saved, and they're hallelujah, you know, they're just going, hallelujah, God is so good, I'm saved, but I'm not getting fed. What's up with that? 
And so the complaint arises. Now, how do you handle a complaint in a church? Do you, you know, do you get defensive? Do you say, you know, you people. Sometimes that's the way we, we take it. You know, man, we're trying so hard. Don't you give us credit? Don't you see us trying to feed some people? You know, what is your problem? You know, I love what the passage here says about the complaint. You know what it says? Nothing. Nobody gets defensive. Nobody says, you know, you, we've given you a, you, you got food the other day. It, there's, there's none of that. The apostles and the elders, they listen. They hear it. Often in a, in a cross-cultural church or in a multi-ethnic church, there are going to be issues. And I, and I want to say this to you, even as you build the village church, as different kinds of folk come into the body of Christ, you need to realize that at times people will have issues you are completely ignorant of. You, you would not have even thought about it. And sometimes the guilt might be laid right at your feet. And you'll say, but I didn't do anything. And that might be the very point. The very point is you didn't think about it. It never crossed your mind. You have neglected people. You have hurt people. And all of a sudden, it's right in your face. What do you do? Well, I'll find another church. That's what I'll do. I, I don't like friction. I, I don't like uh, feeling intimidated. I don't like... Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. No, no, they, they heard it. Now, you might say, as you read the text, you realize what happens here. The, the apostles and the elders say, you know, it's not right for us uh, to wait on tables and to neglect the ministry of the Word and prayer. And you might say, what a cop-out. Who do you think you are? Why can't you wait on tables? You know why? Because they were spending most of their time in jail. They were preaching the gospel so faithfully. You just read the first five chapters of Acts. They would preach, they'd get arrested. They'd preach, they'd get arrested. Then they'd get beaten. So if you are faithful in the, in the role of the gospel, doing your job as a man of God, trying to be an elder of God, trying to serve the people of God, trying to win the loss to Christ, well then, serving tables is a distraction from what you got to do, what you're called to do, but it's not a distraction for the church. Because catch this, not everybody in the church is a preacher. Not everybody in the church is supposed to be an elder. Not everybody in the church is supposed to be up here proclaiming the word. You may say, but I want my chance. And after we hear you, we say, no, no, no more chances. Um, now, they said, it's not right for us to do this. But it, the problem is real. The problem is real. And we need, to, we need to take care of these ladies. They are the children of God. We need to feed them. So how do we do it? Let's pick out some men. And I love this. And any of you who are ever called to be a deacon or work in mercy, please hear this. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You don't want to help poor people without the Holy Ghost and without wisdom. 
because it will eat you up. You will know, you will think you're doing a good deed and you will get plowed under. It's like one of those things that said, no good deed goes unpunished. A lot of poor people are not Christians. A lot of poor people are just like you. They are selfish and some of them don't tell the truth and some of them will play you. So how are, you, how are we as Christians? You know, a lot of Christians go, oh yeah, let's help the poor. But they weren't thankful. And then we get, we get all bummed out. So you and I need, if we're going to ever be effective in helping poor people, we need the Holy Ghost and we need wisdom. And so what the church did was they said, pick out seven men full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, and we'll let them take on this responsibility. Now, here is the little thing that you may not have noticed. Every one of these men has a Greek name. They came up with an ethnic solution to an ethnic problem. Oh, I don't, that's affirmative action. I don't like that. This is not political. This is missions. All right? You go into a different country. You know, when I went to Kenya, my role there was not uh, to build a church so that I could be the pastor of it all my life and then turn it over to my son while we minister to Africans. My role was to be there a short time until an African finished his schooling so he could be the preacher. Uh, we wanted to raise up indigenous leadership. When you come into a community, especially a multi-ethnic community, your job is not finished until the people of this neighborhood have become your deacons, your elders, and your pastors. That kind of indigenous discipleship is what it's all about. It's not a colonization of people. You know, when we talk about coming into poor neighborhoods, we need relocators. We need people who will move in, middle-class people. But we don't need them to come in in such numbers that they gentrify the neighborhood and pull, move all the poor people away. And, I, and I'm not speaking against gentrification. If it provides for the inclusion of the poor, which most of it does not, unfortunately. It's going to take a lot of imaginative Christian entrepreneurial types to be able to do set-asides and keep that happening so there's justice. But that's an aside. But in the church, they heard a complaint. They took it seriously. They came up with an ethnic solution and a spiritual one. And look what happened. The number of disciples increased. And that is what chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 6 that I've just read to you really show us, that when the quality of godliness impacts us as a community, it's attractive. Brothers and sisters, you know, we can, we can, I can proclaim doctrine to you all day long, and I believe in doctrine. I am theologically committed by conscience. I love the Word of God, and I think that every one of us needs to be trained thoroughly in it. But I do want you to understand what's going to attract the lost is not so much the articulation of our doctrine, but the demonstration of the grace of God among us. Will we love one another? 
Will we hear each other's hurts from one another? Will we not be defensive about it, but will we rise up to say, how can we meet this need? Not so I can lord it over you, but so that we can be one. When that happens, and when it happens out in the community and people see it, people go, how, how is that possible? How is that possible? That, that God must be among you. If you love one another, God must be among you. And so that's my simple word to you today, that there needs to be a qualitative complexity about you. In other words, uh, something ought to change in the fact that we are a new community in Christ. Not just that we are going to church, but we are being the church. Amen. Holy Father, I pray for the Village Church. I pray that You would help them whatever comes, that You would build them together and bind them together in the love of Christ. That, Lord, such generosity and goodness will flow from their hearts to one another. That people will know that it's of You. And we confess that, Lord, nothing good comes out of us, but it all comes from You. So shower this church with Your grace and exalt the name of Your Son. And in His name we pray. Amen.